Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now we're bringing Timothy Fiore, chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey from the Institute for Supply Management. We saw a beat, Tim, today and um, a gain over the previous figure. What does this tell us about you know the reopening of the U.S. economy? Uh, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Matt. So this is the fourth month over 60, man. We're, we are burning hot. So this is the second highest PMI number that we've seen since May of 04. And this number is better than any number that we saw in the 2016 to 2019 run-up that uh, was probably one of the highest quality manufacturing run-ups that we've had in the last 20 years. So things are really operating very well, except we've got issues on the labor side. I mean, this number would have been stronger if, uh, if the employment number at our panelist companies could, would have been allowed to grow. And, you know, clearly with the supplier delivery number being as high as it is, they're struggling with still attracting people back to the workforce. So it's all the, the whole issue now is uh, people coming back to the workforce because there's plenty of demand there and plenty of backlog to work on. Talk to us about this supply chain. We know we keep uh, hearing stories about how a lot of these manufacturers are, are finding trouble or having trouble finding the raw materials and, and, and on a timely basis. How's that impacting the numbers that you look at? Well, we have record lead times, so we've never had lead times extended out this long ever. Uh, had many panelists comment about they've never been 25, 30 years in the business, and they've never seen a combination of shortages, lead time extensions, and price increases like they've seen over the last six or nine months. So, uh, it, you know, if you peel the whole thing back, it's the supply community is having trouble getting people to respond to, to work requests to. We, you know, we had 83% of my employment comments were companies trying to hire and of that, 50% said that they were having difficulty in hiring. That's a really dramatic number. Uh, on the sentiment side, we had 36 for every one person who was really positive about the future. That's I've never seen a number that high. And from an employment standpoint, we had 12 people trying to hire with one person trying to attrit or freeze their hiring manpower staffing. Wow. So all really positive numbers here. Uh, the horizon looks very strong. Uh, this number would have been quite a bit higher if, if uh, our panelist companies have hired more, you know, at a 50.4, 50.9 number on the employment compared to all the others that were getting closest to uh, 60 and 65. That was the, the whole story. You know, well, customer inventories, the shelves are empty. Tim, are is the hiring problem because they're not paying enough? I mean, um, you know, I'll do probably anything for you if you double my salary, <laughs> but... But obviously, there are some things that I can't do because I don't know how to. Is it a skill issue or is it um, a wage issue? Well, it's competition. So everybody's been paying more. They've been paying bonuses. They've been paying hazard pay, signing bonuses, referrals. And they've been increasing wages, too, to attract more people. At some point, you kind of cap out because this kind of imbalance in the labor market doesn't last forever, but a wage increase does. So... People are kind of saying, okay, I've gone as far as I can go. I'm not going to pay $30 an hour for a $20 an hour job because I'm stuck with it. I'd have to lay everybody off at the end of this thing to get back down to the right cost structure. So we're kind of frozen. And you get the combination now, though. The good thing is you get the summertime coming, so people know how to deal with their children in the summertime. The school issue is no longer an issue, so that's off the table. There's 20 states that have, uh, that have decided to suspend uh, federal support on the unemployment side and the special unemployment 
I think that's a really good thing. There's a lot of states that are trying to get people back to work and paying them that sets up a conflict. Uh, so and I think this thing is going to run with us, though, until the end of September because you've got 30 states that aren't withdrawing the federal support. So, number one, you got the employment issue, the schooling issue going away. We're in the summertime. People know how to take care of the kids in the summertime. It's no longer do I go to class or not. And then the second thing here is that we're withdrawing that financial incentive for people to kind of debate about whether they should stay home or not. But there are still 30 states that are not doing that. So by the time we get to September, October, this whole thing should kind of clear up. In the meantime, there's plenty of work out there. There's plenty of business. Uh, We just need the people to come in to do it. All right, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Just some historic numbers coming out on the other side of this. Again, they were historic going into it, as we think about a year ago, and we're starting to see the flip side of that here, certainly from the manufacturing side, extraordinary numbers. Tim Fury, chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey for the Institute for Supply Management, and the numbers, uh, Matt, are just uh, you know, extraordinary, and, and the labor's a key issue, as we, as we heard from Tim. Well, certainly, as we begin to emerge from this pandemic and the economic carnage caused by it, uh, you just need to walk down Main Street, USA, around this country, and you see so many uh, vacant storefronts here, and it becomes so apparent how small businesses were really impacted by uh, this economic disruption. And the question is, how will they recover on the other side of it? Jay uh, DeMarto, he's head of commercial distribution at TD Bank. They have a small business survey and lots of cool information. Jay, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, it seems like small businesses really bore the brunt of the economic disruption caused by the pandemic. How do they expect to recover here as we emerge on the other side? Well, you know, we, we survey companies every year, and um, this year we surveyed 750. And it's always important to remember how small some of these companies really are. There's 30 million small businesses in the U.S., and 76% of them are sole props, so they're working for themselves by themselves. And small business, that 30 million is the largest segment of, of businesses in the U.S. It's 99% of all businesses. So it tells you just out of the gate, very many businesses are just, you know, one person working for themselves, and 90% of them have revenue less than $100,000. So they're not, they're not big. They don't have a lot of capital. And, uh, you know, to get through a pandemic or weather a storm, we actually look at business closings and our survey results. They actually did pretty well, which uh, shows some of the government programs had a good effect. And they, you know, tightened their belts and fi- found other ways to, you know, accept payments and change their business lines and, and uh, you know, survive 2020, which was huge. Do we need um, the fiscal support to keep coming? You know, it was it was highly effective. If you think uh, about PPP in particular, uh, I think there were oh, um, you know, eight million or so loans uh, done by the government. We at TD Bank, we did. Um, 133,000 of them ourselves. We were a top 10 bank participating in it. And I found that, you know, people who took those loans um, really needed them. Um, You know, about a third of all companies in the U.S. took a loan, which is pretty incredible. So, uh, you know, 66% of the people we surveyed said they were effective. And they also said they could be more effective by, you know, getting more money. Um, The original loan amount was two and a half times one month of payroll expenses. So, that anticipated the pandemic would probably last the summer last year. We all know it went quite a bit longer. So that's, you know, hence the, the program that came out this year kind of doubled down and helped people out this year as well. So I do think overall they were effective. You know, small business closings we're seeing in our 
customer base and also uh, just nationally um, really haven't gone up. I know you mentioned retail at the beginning of the segment. That was a hard-hit segment, clearly, as well as, you know, hospitality restaurants and, and the like. But, you know, construction, accounting, um, a lot of those other industries, they, they did well. They thrived. So, Jay, you know, again, as you walk down Main Street, USA, um, you see a, some abandoned storefronts for businesses that went out of business. But the businesses that survived, you see in their windows, help wanted. Talk to us about some of these small businesses. Are they able to hire the people they need to either reopen or, or, or maybe grow? You know, that has been a problem. Um, in our survey, all the businesses, uh, business owners, are fairly optimistic, uh, you know, for 2021. Uh, 86% said they're either going to grow revenue or stay the same. The way they're going to grow is by expanding hours or expanding products and services. 76% said they're going to expand hours. Over 50% say they want to expand products and services. That type of uh, you know growth requires hiring that you mentioned, and you know uh, 20% are trying to find employees now. And I'm hearing from all of our customers that it's a very tight labor market. So I wonder what you think of the possibility of inflation then being less than transient. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of money in the system. Um, you know, I mentioned PPP. We've seen a lot of capital. Oh, the reverse repo program. facility was nuts, so right? I mean, yeah. last week and still. And, and so there, there's more of it there, too. You're right. Um, yeah. All kinds of capital coming in. And we're seeing in our deposit accounts of our small business customers and just business customers, they're pretty inflated. So they should be in a good capital position. And a lot of them have, you know, applied for lines of credit or kind of backstop type of. Uh, uh, facilities. So, yes, I think inflation, when you see that much money in the system and, you know, labor rates are going to have to go up to attract labor. And I know you guys have heard the statistics on things like, you know, two by fours and construction um, materials, all highly inflated right now. All right, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you coming on, sharing some of the findings from the TD Bank Small Business Survey. Generally an optimistic crew, um, you know, the small business folks. Jay uh, DeMarto, he's head of commercial distribution for TD Bank. When you think about small business owners, I think by nature, um, you know, they're a pretty optimistic crew because they're putting a lot of uh, capital at risk. They're putting their welfare at risk. Um, but we're starting to see uh, more and more of these stores reopening, and that's good to see across uh, middle America here on Main Street. Eldring and David Seamer, he is the CEO at Wave Financial Wave was set up to bridge the divide between the traditional investment management business and crypto assets. And they've got now, um, what, about $500 million in assets under management. David, I'm wondering who your clients are. What's your client base look like? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me first. Um, yeah, it's a mix. We have a lot of high net worths. Uh, about probably about half of our uh, clients are what we call crypto natives. So they're, most of their net worth is crypto. We do a lot of yield strategies for them. Then on the less kind of crypto native or less crypto knowledgeable, it's more access strategies. You know, get them you know Bitcoin or other tokens, and then eventually putting yield strategies around those. David, talk to us about the volatility we've seen in, in crypto really over the last month or so. I think that's kind of, uh, for a lot of critics, it's given them some ammunition saying, boy, you look at Bitcoin and some of the others, uh, the volatility there just takes away some of the legitimacy or calls into question some of the legitimacy as uh, crypto as, as an asset class. What, what are your views? 
Yeah, I mean, what happened in the last month is, and this has been what's kind of been a cycle we've seen for the last eight years, is, you know, a lot of crypto originally was held in China. A lot of it's uh, been kind of flowing out of China recently, which is, you know, it's kind of been rushing, you know, pushing the prices down. And every year, right around this time of year, China makes a bunch of announcements, some of which they follow through on, some of which they don't, which really affect the price. Um, as far as legitimacy of crypto, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a different question. Yes, the volatility is scary when it's downside volatility. Obviously, when it's upside volatility, it's not that scary. Um, but it's just kind of the nature of the asset, you know, which is part of why Wave focuses pretty heavily on yield strategies. Like we do a lot of derivative strategies for our clients um, to put, you know, the volatility is not neither good nor bad by itself. You know, if you can leverage the volatility into certain ways, it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, but, yeah, it does spook a lot of people. There was a lot of talk of ETFs coming out in the next, you know, in, in the U.S., uh, you know, approval by the SEC. And I think this little bout of volatility will probably have a negative impact on that. We'll probably give them justification to continue to, to push that out. Nonetheless, we're talking about lines of code that um, over a decade have gone from being worth nothing to being worth yep. 40,000 bucks a piece. I mean, the, the growth is impressive. I'm wondering about your yield strategies. I've been hearing more and more about this. Joe Weisenthal's podcast interviewed a yield farmer the other day. <laughs> what What is that? Yeah, I mean, so these are really unique assets. So a lot of the world still can only think of like Bitcoin as kind of a digital stock certificate. And it's, it's actually a lot more than that. I mean, it's, it's fractional. Each one's fractionable into hundreds of millions. Uh, you can wrap them in certain other assets and take them into like decentralized finance. Um, again, these are very dynamic assets. You know, most of the coins now are staking coins, which is a, you know, kind of different than the mining network. It's a you know, way of registering your tokens to a network. But the fact that they yield that. nothing, David, has been a criticism. doesn't yield anything, you know? You mean so what do you do? doesn't yield anything? Oh, no, yeah, people, people always say something. that, just like they've always criticized gold for the same reason. Um, and I get it, but you, you talk about yield strategies. So what are, what are yield strategies? Yeah, so there's a huge lack of liquidity in crypto, meaning in the sense of there's a lot of need for dollars. So if you have cash now, like fiat of any currency, and you're willing to lend it into crypto, which is going to people that are like financing mining equipment or, you know, market neutral hedge funds, things like that, there's a really high yield, uh, upwards of 20% a year, uh, which obviously is not sustainable long term, but it's a really nice yield. Um, so you can lend cash into the markets. You can also lend the actual crypto assets. We do a lot of uh, Bitcoin lending for our clients. People want to borrow it to short it or whatever. You know, you can get, you know, if you wrap it into ETH and put in DeFi, you can get upwards of like 6 7% a year, which is, which is pretty material in this day and age. I mean, every year you have 6 or 7% more Bitcoin. Um, so, so it's pretty powerful strategies. And that's kind of what we Wave was built to take advantage of. Um, so, yeah. David, what's the next notable event that you need to see just in broad crypto that maybe just make it a little bit more mainstream? What's what's the defining thing that you need to see next? Yeah, I mean, most of it comes down to regulation. I mean, I think, which we're starting to see. There's been a lot of pronouncements recently. You know, for people that are diehard crypto people like myself, like you don't really want to see the regulators weigh in. But for broad adoption, it'd, it'd be very you. powerful. You know, so eventually we will see SEC approved, you know, Bitcoin ETFs and things like that, which I think will add a lot of adoption, just moves a lot of the barriers, also provides that umbrella of legitimacy to a lot of other users that, you know, haven't spent 10 years in this asset class and got comfortable with it. So, so there'll be, a, I, think the, I think the regulators will lead the way on some of these things. And I think it'll take time. I mean, I, we actually looked at launching a Bitcoin ETF in 2016 and right. spent a lot of money on it and then stop spending money on it when it looked like it wasn't going to happen for years. 
And we still don't know. I mean, everyone thought a Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. is like three to six months away for five years. All right, David. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. Really fascinating stuff. David Seymour, he's the CEO of Wave Financial, really all over that crypto space. It's, you know, you feel like it's just very, very much in its infancy, uh, although it's been around for a while. And Matt, you've certainly been talking about it for a long time, but it just feels like it's in its infancy and there's just a tremendous amount of growth uh, ahead of it. And the question is, to what extent will it be regulated? Matt, I'm sure you've owned, you know, forever the big tech names, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, and you've just been laughing all the way to the bank. But a lot of folks felt like they missed it. And will there ever be an opportunity to get some of those hyper-growth names again? Well, our next guest suggests maybe so. Vincent Deluard, he's a global macro strategist for StoneX, and they just put out a report entitled Impossible Growth at an Unreasonable Price, the 60 Next Amazons. Vincent, thanks so much for joining us here. What's kind of the key takeaway from your most recent report about the 60 Next Amazons? Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, the key takeaway is that you know we have a lot of excitement about growth and a certain very large ETF betting on a on a bright future, um, and it's it's possible. I mean, we saw it with the uh, the big tech stocks, the mega stocks, that we see this extraordinary growth that uh, surprises everybody. The question is, how many of these stocks can we expect to see? And what I did in this report is I projected the growth path of the mega stocks, so Microsoft, Apple, Google, um, Amazon. Thanks for defining that. Uh, yeah, and um, and uh, discounted it to the present, and found that the market is already pricing this scenario and more for sixty stocks. So either we will live in a bright future where we'll have flying cars and we'll live forever and we'll no longer have to work, or uh, some of these names are obscenely and absurdly overvalued. Yeah, so your point is not that these are 60 stocks that you can make a killing on the way you would have with Amazon 20 years ago, but that it's just terribly unlikely. They're just so highly valued that people are going to lose money on these. What are the what are the biggest defenders here, Vincent? Um, so, yeah, that, that, that is correct. Uh, the... Uh, the, the, the way the stocks are priced today is that some of these stocks are priced that even if we projected the same growth path as the MAGA stocks, they would still lose money uh, because they discount this future and even some more. Uh, so most of that is in the healthcare sector, uh, specifically the biotech. Um, and, and I kind of understand uh, to some extent uh, the approach. I mean, this is the nature of biotech investing. Uh, is you know you, you just throw money at ideas and you, you know you know that 99 are are going to uh, you know not not pan out and you don't know which one is going to be the one that you know has a 100x return uh, so that's that's just the investing model uh, the problem is once you get to such level of high valuations even finding that elusive you know uh, world changing stock that will turn into the next Amazon will not be enough to save uh, the rest of the portfolio. You know, one of the interesting things um, about Amazon, to me at least, I'm watching it, you know, since the beginning, is the market's willingness to give Jeff Bezos and his management team carte blanche to take every potential penny of profit and reinvest it in the business. So there were, you know, many, many, many years when this stock was working extraordinarily well that there was no profits and the valuation call was just crazy. Now with 
with you know the cloud and with their advertising business, they actually have some profits on the bottom line. But how do you explain that? Right, right. I, I think this is somewhat specific to Amazon, by the way. Uh, first of all, I mean, the profits weren't there, but the free cash flow generation was pretty good. I mean, you could see that, you know, um, the reason, you know, the, the, the firm was growing very fast and that, that's why, you know, everything had to be brought back into the business, but the underlying of the business was, was actually pretty good. Uh, also, I would point that, you know, this is true of Amazon. This is not true of the other MAGA stocks. I mean, you know, they were uh, profitable fairly early on. Again, that's, that's, that's a big difference uh, between the MAGA of the old and the wannabe MAGA that I'm talking about, uh, where if, if you look at the, the hyper-growth stocks, uh, the, stock, the stocks that trade for more than 10 times uh, sales in the U.S., uh, really there hasn't been any earnings, uh, for, uh, in aggregate at least, uh, for the past five years. If anything, I, I, I did a, a funny experiment, and I, I saw that they spent more or about the same in stock-based compensation as they had earned uh, over the past five years. So, um, again, it could be that they are all Amazons, I tend to think that Amazon really was an extraordinary miracle. You had this management that was, you know, visionary. You had fantastic execution. Uh, you had a, you know, basically a, a company that built a monopoly uh, over online trade. I mean, these things are not likely to be happen to happen again sixty oh. times in the next decade. Monopolies are so great when you want to make money, <laughs> right? Um, uh, without getting further into that assessment of Amazon, because it's dangerous, obviously for for shareholders. What what, what are some of? The, did you come across any of these moonshot stocks that aren't insanely overvalued? Do you see anything out there, Vincent, that um, looks like it could pay off, but isn't trading at ten x earnings, ten x revenue? Um, I, I don't have the you know, expertise, especially in, in something like, like biotech. Uh, I'm sure there will be, uh, they, they, you know, that there will be some of these. I mean, I'm, I'm extremely bullish on, on the, the future of healthcare and, and biotech. And I, I do think that this is where we are going to see, uh, the next Amazon. The thing is, I'm, I'm not smart enough, uh, to know which one it will be. Uh, one thing though that I would, I would point is that, um the the buying the sector as a whole in the hope of like well you know i don't know what i'm getting so i'm just going to buy a diversified etf and then i'm going to try to hold as many as possible and then you know I'll, i will get it by default it's probably not going to work um i, I rent an etf like arc I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll let you uh <laughs> your words not mine uh that was and, a question the problem- there was a question mark at the end of that <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, if if we approach a sim- if we follow the similar approach, for example, in March two thousand, if you had bought basically all the hyper growth stocks in in March two thousand, thinking, okay, one of them is going to turn right. out, um, you would have been correct. Like you would have bought indeed Amazon and Gilead, which you know have been hundred daggers. Right. Uh, but the problem is these stocks would have been a tiny fraction of your portfolio at the time. Um, right. Yahoo was four times larger than, than, than Amazon. And that went, yeah, and, you know what happened to Yeah, that. and then you, 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 I think 20% of the portfolio was right. in Cisco. So All right, Vincent. Thank you so much for joining us. Really fascinating report. Vincent Deluard, a global macro strategist at StoneX with some really thought-provoking work. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.